know if any of you are excited, all the things going on in the world, but I got a little bonus in my life. Um, the new Downton Abbey movie is coming out on Friday. Now, you might not be into this, but this was amazing because they had this whole series and you have to watch the British version of the series because of the way don't do the American, you know, more series cut up. It doesn't work. But all that to be said is that I've just surprising how much I love this series. And then a while ago, they put out a movie that kind of tied all the loose ends together, you know, and it was like, yeah, it was a little contrived. I knew what you were doing, but we got more of the story. Right. And it was, it was, it, it, that movie felt like, it felt like Downton Abbey said, let's all go to Christmas and, uh, with a, like our family Christmas and not argue about anything. Like, you know, it was a little bit contrived, like, yeah, we're all great. We're not going to bring up anything. Right. Uh, it, it felt a little bit like this. So this one is called a new era. And I'm excited because. Will this be like the new Marvel series where they start spinning out movies, right? And, uh, and then I started thinking, oh, which characters connect to which Marvel characters in Downton Abbey? And then I realized that I need to get more hobbies. So anyways, but what I, what I've enjoyed about the series is this, is that the series takes place about a, a hundred years ago, right around a hundred years ago. And in one sense, everything is different. And then it's, then it's, you know, it's from, it's from Britain. So everything's already different, you know? And, um, and yet as you get into the storyline, it's exactly the issues that we face today. You know, people's character, tensions, conflict, right? How, uh, you know, uh, people not being trustworthy, uh, people sacrificing, Right, just all these, you know, all the everything that we face on a daily basis with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends, with our work, everything is the same except socially things are different. Right? And it also doesn't escape me that a hundred years ago, when we're going through and you think, oh, the times were different, this is exactly the time that the families of CLC decided to start this church. And you know what? You kind of go, whoa, this was close to the era that right to, to hear like it was close to the place where they were in and we um and we've heard some of the stories of the things and the sacrifices that the original families that started CLC had to make right the the the, the big one is that when they went to buy the first property they had to put it in their children's names cuz they couldn't own property right Real, a very different uh time you know can you imagine having a five-year-old own the church building, right? If you don't get snack time, everybody's out, right? That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of power to give a five-year-old. But when I was thinking about this and all the things that happened 100 years ago, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, those were the good old days. Like life would have been so easy back then. Right? Because part of it is we know, we know the story, I can look back on the 1920s and think, oh, I know what's going to happen in the 30s, the 40s. The so, but in their real life, they did not know what was going to happen. The Downton Abbey goes through the First World War. Um, they didn't call it that. They called it the Great War because, right, they didn't know a second one was coming. Right? But what decade would we think, boy, if I could go back, that seemed like a simpler time of life, a better time, maybe an easier time even to live in faith. You know, would you say, hey, the 1930s, you know, oh, no, I, 
during a depression. Well, the 1940s. Oh, no, there was a war. The 1960s. Oh, there was complete social upheaval. Anytime that we go back, there's never, there's never an easy time that would say those were the best of days. I think the best that I could analogize it is to when I think about my life, I go, boy, that was a great time. It was a great time of my life. And half of the time it was because of my own ignorance, right? The eighties were amazing to me because I was a college student that was wearing neon the whole time, right? It was, it was easy. I didn't have a lot of cares because I just had the things that were five feet out in front of me. Right. And so any, any time in our lives we can say, Oh, I wish things were different. And I say that because the last four or five years have been really difficult. And there's been longing to, I wish we could just go back. Just, I wish we could get back to normal. We've also seen that when it comes to, um, what, the other thing I've, I should say, I've seen in Downton Abbey that I really connected with is they have this other underlying story arc, which is, it's a story about the Earl of Grantham. I think it's the seventh Earl of Grantham. He has the land and the castle and the whole thing, right? And, and every, all the villages around depend on, you know, traditionally have depended on him, you know, for their, for their, you know, for their commerce. Well, the story is that this is all going away. The aristocracy is not working anymore. Economically, it's not, especially, you know, during the twenties, all of a sudden you go, wow, you know, there's, there's real voices saying we need to end this. And, and you're, they're showing this grand family kind of being delevered the whole series more and more. But then because of their rich character development, and I'm telling you way, way too much about that, but you, you tend to love them because of who they are and the way that they've developed the characters. But you see this decline in their status. And I was thinking, boy, this is so similar to how many of us in faith feel. Many of my friends over the past few years that I've had conversations with, especially during the pandemic and many of the social issues that we faced, have kind of felt the same way. I've had so many conversations with friends that say, I feel disconnected from, from my faith. I feel disconnected from culture. I don't know how those fit anymore. It used to fit fine. Now it, it doesn't fit as much. They have a difficult time actually connecting with others, not just because of the, um, because of, um, like social distancing, but a difficult time connecting with others just in being understood about, um, how their faith and how they live out their faith currently having a harder time connecting sometimes with their church. I had a good friend I probably hadn't talked to in, in 10 years call me and just go, can I talk with you about this? I don't have anybody in my, my church in my town that I could talk with. I've had other friends in the area talk to me, um, the same thing, kind of pull me aside and go, can we just go out? And they've just sort of unloaded, if you, for lack of a better term, their anxieties, their thoughts, their places, because um, uh, because the church is no longer, and their place of faith is no longer what it used to be. And in their hearts, and in their minds, they go, boy, I feel this um, this kind of wavering and this tension. And so many, uh, all that to said is that people living in our culture with the changes that have gone on say, I honestly have many times 
um, confusion, tension about how I'm supposed to live, especially with the headwinds of, of brothers and sisters of ours who have taken a political stance on the left or the right, and sometimes how those political headwinds have, you know, have shaped conversations or actually ended conversations. And so, and, and so going forward, and going forward, we thought this would be a great time to talk about the book of Titus. Even though things have changed, when we look at the book of Titus, it's a culture and a people that Paul is reaching out to that is not too dissimilar to what we are experiencing in the Bay Area. And in fact, I would, you know, the one thing that has hit me is that we probably have more in common with the first century church than we've had in our, in our society in a long time. And what I mean, especially here in the Bay Area, what I mean, let me just give you a few, just a few examples. First century, in the first century church, there were many, many different faith traditions depending on what corner of the globe you were from. Fifty years ago, um, in our country, we, we just had a handful. In the Bay Area, now we have many. We have many people from all over the world with different you know, different um, beliefs. So even when we say, and I'll talk about this more, even when we say we talk about God, we actually actually have to define what that means. In our society, we've almost always been able to, it's almost always been defined as a Judeo-Christian God. But in the Bay Area now, that's, right, that's, we can't start with that presupposition anymore. Um, in the first century, uh, Christian beliefs were looked on with skepticism. I've, my neighborhood, I feel like my neighbors look on Christian beliefs with skepticism. And we can kind of all, maybe for different reasons from first or second, but we, we probably have all experienced that. Right? Um, and again, there's no shared language. It's harder to have a shared language around who God is, around right and wrong, around moral, does this make sense? You, you know? Is that wrong? No, that's not wrong, especially within a postmodern society. Now, the first century was very pre-modern, but it was the same thing. When you met people from different cultures, completely different sets of of beliefs and, and, and presuppositions. So how did those followers in the first century thrive? Because we're all here because of them. They thrived not because they figured out the best intellectual arguments, although they did, and we had amazing apologetics, uh, uh, apologists who did that, all from all over, um, from all over the world. But they thrived because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, if we looked at it, almost every place, the gospel has taken up huge ground and people have just been transformed. It's almost always under a society in a place where things aren't just difficult, they're hard. I don't know if you've ever visited churches in politic, um, in, in cultures or, or, um, or, uh, political structures where they are really oppressed. Visiting home churches, secret churches, running from literally government officials trying to track you, right? Um, being careful because different villages in the area um, if they find out, would come after you. And this is where the church has gained ground. 1948, 
um, China shut down every church in the country during the Cultural Revolution. 1985, there were so many secret believers, they had to open up churches to bring it to the surface. When the government said no more, and all believers had was Scripture and the Holy Spirit, God said, okay, that's all we need. And it, and it, it kept multiplying and spreading. And so the good news from our connection with, first, with, with a first century church is that the same thing that made their lives rich, that connected them to the work of God, that gave them genuine uh, purpose and excitement, uh, is exactly what we still have today. So we want to go. Um, so one of the things we're excited we're excited about is we wanted to go through the book of Titus over the next five weeks, and, and we're gonna. And, and Titus is a book to the church uh, to the church that was in Crete. And so um, um, before as we get going, let me pray and just ask God to uh, to pour Himself out on our time this morning. Um, Jesus, thank you um, that. Uh, that things are never boring on this earth. And there's always new ways. There's always things that we need to call on you. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are uh, kind. And that you are true God. And with every different um, belief system that we come up against, everything that we hear, every different social um, pressure that we face in our own world, uh, we can take heart. That, um, that it's you that we trust in. And that as you say, that in this world that we will have trouble, take heart, I have overcome the world. So let us hold on to your hand um, during, um, during this season of our life and of our church. And uh, Father, we ask that you'd speak to us this morning through, uh, through Paul's words to Titus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read from the very first part of Titus, chapter 1. Paul is writing to Titus as he sends him to, the, um, to Crete. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God, God's elect in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, into which now at his appointed season has been brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our, our Savior. So when we come to any book, as we're going to go through this over the next five weeks, there's a few things tonight, this morning I want to do a background, give us a big picture, so that as we talk about the individual, um, the individual topics in in the book of Titus, hopefully you'll be, you'll be able to wrap it into the bigger narrative of what Paul was trying to accomplish. And anytime we come to a new, um, any, anything we're going to be engaging uh, in scripture, there's a few things we have to, um, uh, um, that we, we need to do to really understand it. So as Paul is so as Paul is writing to Titus, he's really writing this book as like a godly playbook for a culture that in just simply, Paul says, is just corrupt. How do you live godly in a corrupt, hard society? Right? 
and so, and so um, as we do this overview, the first thing you want to do is this. Anytime we come to a, anytime we come to a new passage, we want to look and we want to, we want to ask the first question. And the first, the first and most important question when we come to scripture is this. What did this mean to the original audience? Now, and I just want to have a few thoughts. There's a little bit of a little bit of teaching, but this is a mindset shift that we um, a mindset that we want to have anytime we look at Scripture. What did it mean? How do you study Scripture? And what we want to do is always want to read out of Scripture. The temptation is to read into it, right? I have anxiety. I have a problem. I'm worried about something, and we go to Scripture. We find verses, and they go, that makes me feel better, right? It doesn't mean that that verse is wrong, but it's not the best way, because that's easy then to take verses out of context, right? Let me give you an example of this. I became a Christian at 16. Before 16, I don't want you to know what my life, I was terrible. Um, my mother had become a Christian and was praying for me. My grandmother in eighth grade gave me a Bible. Put the Bible, and I took my living 70s Bible and put it under my bed. Well, one day my mother and I, freshman year in high school, we got in a fight. And I told her where to go, and I told her how to get there, and I used all the words. And I knew my mom was trying as hard as she can. She just found a church that was a Bible, you know, Bible uh, teaching church. I knew she was trying hard. I went back to my room, and I felt really bad. And then the thought hit me. What... It, what would God say about me? Because my mother is praying for me. That's all she kept saying. I'm praying for you. I'm like, I know, I know. Right? So I picked up my Bible and I opened it up. And I looked down and it said, how shall you escape the wrath of God? And I go, I want to read that. So I turned the page. And I looked down and it said, it's for an account of this, that God's judgment will come. And I turned the page and I looked, I don't want to read that. And I am not exaggerating seven or eight times. Every time I turn the page and I look down, it's like the raven shall pluck out the eye of the disobedient child. And I'm like, no. And I literally put the Bible down and I'm like, I am doomed. I have pushed God too far. And my own, I mean, you know, in my 15 year old head, I thought, and if God wants to take me out, he could do it any way possible. Right. And so I went over to the phone, called, cold called my mom's church and said, I need to talk to somebody about God. And the person on the phone said, oh, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 15. I'm like, I'm only 15. Like, don't let it end this way. And so that was my, that was the beginning of my story. So what I'm telling you is this. God can use that, but that is the wrong way. Like, I'm going to study scripture. Just, you know, open up the Bible, put your hands down. You, you want to always look at it in context. Like, what was saying? Okay. So, and so who was writing the book? What was the original hearers? What were they like? What were their, what was their culture like? What's their background? What's the author trying to accomplish? Is there a problem that they're trying to say? Is there even the literary form that they're using? What does that have to say? Let me give you a quick example of this. Um, and, uh, might be just a little, little something. So most of the Old Testament is written in prose. One of the hard passages that people go back and forth on is the creation narrative of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, the creation narrative, is poetic. And so we've taken something that's poetry, and we've said, yes, let's make it a scientific conversation. Can you imagine writing poetry, and a thousand years later, somebody 
going through it from a scientific point of view without understanding, right? So just even the literary forms, we need to take it. And sometimes it says, it says this, and it's not trying to say it this way or this way. It's just explaining it because it's poetry. A beautiful, right? You know, a, a beautiful po- a poem that you, you'd write to somebody that you love. Somebody taking it apart and says, sounds like this man has separation anxiety. What's wrong with it, right? No, it's just written beautiful. So even, even the style, literary style, is really important when we come to those things, right? And so many times in our society, Christians, we'll see people grab onto verses. And it's easy, and just as we go through Titus, it's easy to take a verse, right? How many athletes have had Philippians 4.13? Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Right? And then after the game, it's like, not tonight you can't do it. Look, that was a terrible game, right? But, but the idea is that that's written to the church at Philippi, which was a Roman colony. With not, and there's a reason why Paul was writing that to them. What's your favorite verse? Ah, oh, Jeremiah 29.11. Do you want me to ruin Jeremiah 29.11 this morning? Like, read the book of Jeremiah. It's a hard book, right? Jeremiah, God is saying through Jeremiah the whole time, like, you know, Israel, you're going to be judged. Like, I'm going to wipe, I'm going to almost wipe you off the face of the earth. You're going into exile. Your best are taken. People generationally are going to die. But don't worry. I'm, it's not totally over. That's all he's saying in Jeremiah 29. So you understanding the context of the book, then the verses really then come to life, right? And it's the same thing with the geography. If you have been to the Holy Land, all of a sudden you realize you go places, you go, oh, that's, oh, that's, that's what Jesus said here. If you tell this mountain to throw itself into the sea, then you're in Jerusalem. You're like, oh, the mountain is Jerusalem. If you tell Jerusalem to throw, oh, he's using figurative language. You go to the Sea of Galilee. I didn't know this till I, I was able to visit. The Sea of Galilee is, um, it looks like a bowling ball hit the, literally hit the earth. It's a six, it's 600 feet below sea level, like a big divot. And the Sea of Galilee sits down there. It's kind of the vacation place because it's balmy there. It's, you know, the outlying is desert, but that's, you know, real humid, balmy area because everything sits in that, that basin. And so when they say a storm came up on the lake, you're like, oh, yeah, real easily. Or when you look at the, you know, the demographics, why Jesus would get into a boat or why the Sermon on the Mount, like probably it was one of these areas. So even the context of the history. So we're always looking at that. Now, I wanted to take some time because I think as 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 a follower of Jesus, this is really a lot of the work. And the great thing is now we, we, we have this at our disposal. But we always want to be reading scripture within context. And, and so we're always asking, what did this mean to the original audience? Because many times we'll just take these verses out, like when it comes to leadership, and say an elder is A, B, C, D, and E, and go, okay, you got to uh, go, well, look at it in context. What, why was Paul saying what he was saying? And then you go, oh, that's, that makes a little more sense, right? So what did it mean? So, Second question, not only what did it mean to the original audience when we look at Crete, what was Crete like? 
Well, Crete is, an, is a mountainous island. It's part of Greece right now. It's been part of the Ottoman Empire and a few other places, sit, sitting in the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a port for trade, for people. And because it's mountainous, it had a lot of different ports at different places in history. So you could see, um, you could kind of understand that a lot of, you know, like it was one of those hubs for trade. So everybody had to kind of come through. Uh, you know, had to, had to come through Crete in order to, order to trade, right? They were also, um, it was really a crossroads. They were also known for their mercenaries. So, you know, you would hire, hire Cretans out to go fight for, fight for your war. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Philistines that were gathered, they tracked that back to go, no, they were originally, uh, they were, they were originally people from, from Crete when they go back to the original name. The Philistines were originally Cretans, right? And that whole context of, of Crete, of just that word Crete and who those people were, did not have a great reputation. Now, there were also a number of Jewish communities in Crete. Um, if, and, and we find this, uh, we find that out in, in different places of history. But there was all these enclaves of also um, of, of, of Jews there. And that's how the gospel spread there very uh, there quickly, right? Um, and here's the thing. The Cretan culture, there's a few of these, was, where they were known as being corrupt. They were known as being liars, right? Uh, and you think, like, oh, that's, that's fantastic. But I think there might have been, and I'll describe this, there might have been some pride in that, right? So when Paul, in the very beginning of, this, of, this, of the letter, when he says... When he says he's representing God, and he says, look, um, he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie. When Paul says that, he's making a statement. He's making a statement to the Cretans, the saying, in your culture, you can lie and it's okay. But he's also making a statement about Zeus. So Paul is like, right, he's like, shots fired. So, the tradition in in the uh, in in Greece was that Zeus was actually from Crete, and so the Cretans were thinking, right? There, there was pride in that, right? That, that was part of their part of their culture, is that Zeus came from them. So, so um, and then later, when Paul is talking later in the first verse. He actually says this, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Can you imagine saying, we'd really love to reach you for Christ. By the way, just so you know, you guys are liars, <laughs> evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This is what Paul says to the people of Crete to, to them. And then he ends up saying, then... In the verse, he says, this saying is true. So I can imagine Paul writing that down. Like this, this passage from one of Crete's own prophets. And then the Holy Spirit saying, oh, by the way, Paul, tell him it's true. <laughs> like, really? Like, oh, yeah, that's true. Right? This is, this is how God, God allowed this to be in a, a, a scripture. You can, you can imagine him doing that. And so even when it comes, as we go through leaders of Cretan society, it says this. this. These are some of the, I won't go into them, but I'll just do the flyover here. When he talks about elders, 
He says they should not be overbearing, quick, not quick tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. What kind of society do you have to be in that you have to actually list these things for one of your church elders? So on one level, the list of leadership is like a high bar, right? This is what we want as, as elders. But for the Cretans, it was also the low bar. Like, guys, you just, you can't have people that lie. And so... Um, And so in the next weeks, as we discover that, realize that when Paul is saying that, that is the current reality at the, at the small churches that were in Crete. And I believe that they probably took some pride, um, in their lives in this, in, in, in being kind of deceptive. You're going to come trade with us. And guess what? Yeah. You're going to get the short end of the stick. Right. They're going to do that. Um, a missionary, uh, one of my friends in, in, in college, uh, grew up as a missionary kid in Erie and Jaya, and there, his friend Don Richardson, who was in a tribe that was next to them, went into a new tribe to share the gospel with them, right? Spent time getting to know them, translating their language, and finally, um, at a certain place, was able to share the gospel with this tribe. And when they shared the story of Jesus, the tribe rejoiced. At Judas. And he was like, what? Because their tribe, their highest priority was in deceptive and being, and being tricked. And so in that story, they go, Judas tricked Jesus. Scoreboard Judas. And he just like, can you imagine spending years <laughs> of your life to have that result? Now, the good news was he was like, what's the story that connects? And he wrote a book called The Peace Child. When two tribes go to war. In order to avert war, the one tribe hands the other child, uh, hands the other tribe uh, a child to raise. They raise each other's children and they have peace until those child, those children are raised. He goes, Oh, that's the place. This is the, the, you know, Judas didn't work. But I, I think of that because I think how many Cretans, when Paul is saying this as strongly, must have taken pride within their corrupt culture. Fortunately, we don't do anything like that in our, in our culture. The things that are broken in our culture. How many times have you talked to somebody? How are you doing? Ah, I'm really busy. What does that say? I'm important. I don't have any leverage in my life. Right? What part of being overly busy is something that, right, is godly? I'm not saying we're not busy. But in our own culture, there's things that we sort of sometimes can take pride in. Like, oh, yes, I'm this way. And many times they're, they're just things that have been in the fabric, kind of tacit underneath the surface, right? Um, and so when the gospel lands, when it lands in Crete, even though they're a corrupt society, even though they're known as liars, even though they have years of history of being mercenaries, being kind of selfishly for themselves, you can see how that could be on an island, um, all of a sudden, the, but the gospel takes root there. So again, this is good news. Don't be, ever be discouraged. Like, I don't know about any of my neighbors. I don't know any of the people I work with. They just don't, I don't know if they'll ever understand. I just feel like alone. No, 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 no. God is always at work. And 
even though Paul is confronting this culture um, in this church, um, God is at work there. And then the last question we come to and ask is, what was the church like? Well, the church was founded by uh, Christians, uh, and it's mentioned in Acts 2. When Pentecost came and there were people from all over, go through and read that. People from Egypt, people from these tribes, and guess what? People from Crete. And they took that back to their Jewish communities. And so we're going to find that there were other issues involved because they were still practicing many of the Jewish practices and emphasizing those. And that's why Paul is saying, no, we need to uh, change out leadership, right? And the churches there, the small, small churches, I was talking to my, my, my friend about this, who's a, who's one of the leading, uh, she's one of the leading scholars on Luke Acts. And I go, what were these churches like? She was small, very small communities. Um, and they were led not by like a, like a, a pastor like we would know them it was usually um you know a handful of godly people that would lead the discussion and sometimes like the elders at a like at a gate within a jewish community um would have sometimes differing opinions so the so when paul does talk about leadership it's why it's important because right if you get a few elders going off this direction left or right it would really sway everybody and that's what was the reports that were coming back Right, and we also know from the things he was talking about that um, that the church the church was very comfortable within their Cretan culture. Things that were probably not considered godly, but that were okay in the Cretan culture. Fortunately, we don't struggle with that. Right, were okay in the church, and Paul was like that. We have to stop that. So, so much of his advice to them that we're going to see is just very plain, straightforward. Like, do this, don't do that, right? And so this was so important that Paul actually sends Titus. So he has somebody face-to-face to go through and make sure this was happening. Paul had started this thing. He'd been writing to the churches before even this letter, but he writes to Titus, and he says, look, I need you on the ground to do this, especially in this mountainous region where it wasn't like the you know, where not only were the cities a little bit disconnected, I'm sure the, Christ, the uh, small Christian churches also weren't as, as connected as it would be in other geographic places. So then, as we end our time to this morning, what was Paul's playbook? Well, the answer is this. Overall in the book, he says, place godly leaders in, your, in our lives and make an effort to live godly lives. He goes, this is the answer. And the result is this. When we do that, spiritual health is restored and confusion and chaos is replaced. I think as we look at this living in the Bay Area, right? Who are the godly leaders in your life? What sort of effort are you making to live a godly life? Because when we do, I I believe the same principle will happen. Spiritual health will be restored and the things that don't give us peace, that we will start to experience that peace that God gives. If you're not experiencing peace, if you feel tension, that's okay. The solution is to live, to take an effort to live a godly life. So Pastor Ben and Calvin and, and Caitlin will be talking about godly leadership, kind of like failed leadership, the godly advice, what it's like for us to live in a godly community here over the next, uh, next few weeks. And so the two challenges I want to leave you with this morning from this book overall is this. Who are the leaders in your life? Paul's going to make a huge 
emphasis on leadership. Who are the leaders in your life? If you feel like your faith isn't connecting, who are you talking with? What are you listening to? What are you consuming? Who are the godly leaders in your life? And like Titus, who do you need to have a face-to-face relationship with? The second thing I think we're going to find over the next month or so is what is your effort level when it comes to your faith? Um, You can imagine with most of us in the Bay Area, when it comes to our our, our education, uh, we have a very high effort level. Um, I, I didn't like, you know, I didn't like organic chemistry, <laughs> right? And I, and I knew that it wasn't going to give me like, I'm going to need to know this one day cause I'm going to raise children. Like it didn't have any kind of purpose, but you know, I, there was a lot of effort put into it. And sometimes when it comes to faith, we can have a laissez faire sort of attitude. Well, I'll just get what I get when I have time to get it. And it's. Not surprising when we end up in a different place. Paul's saying, make good effort. And we have to sometimes question, do I really want this? Right? Do, and so this is probably going to be some of the questions that come up in this series. Because these were the questions that Paul, that, that Paul brings to the church. You've got to put more effort into this. I've had this conversation with my daughters. Sometimes it's easy for them when they're growing up in their teenage years just to want an answer. Dad, just give me the answer. And I'm like, no, you have to get the answer for yourself. Like, Dad, what's, as a Christian, you know, what's what's my stance on the LGBT, you know, Q plus community? How do I, how do I do that? Is it this? Is it that? Is it just wrong? And I go, no, no, no. You need to have the conversation with God. It's not just, here's your answer. Just repeat what's on the piece of paper. The effort is saying, I need to listen to sermons. I need to read books. I need to understand people. And then have the, for me to say, how do you have an honest, open, transparent conversation? So if somebody comes to you and says, you're a Christian, what do you think about this? You can legitimately say, ah, it's really good. I know I'm thinking a lot about it. I think this, and I see scripture says this, but it also says this. What do you think? You can actually have a conversation. Now, try to pick out a most controversial topic, but my daughter who's in the, is in theater. This is a right. How is a Christian? What's, what's my posture to be? And I go, your posture to be is to be connected to your father, godly advice, living out things godly, not just looking for uh, an answer and going into a corner and turning away from, you know, others and people. And so as we go through, as we go through this series, my hope is that you will ask yourself these, um, these good but difficult questions when it comes to who is a leader in my life and what's the effort and energy level that I need to put into my faith so that I can experience the closeness of God, the wisdom of God, and the work of God. Let's pray, and Pastor Calvin's going to come and lead us in communion. Jesus, thank you for this book. Thanks for the dear brothers and sisters of Crete. And even though they lived in a society that by all things that we can tell, a culture that was corrupt, uh, A, you cared about them and you went after them. 
Father, we have similar but different issues. We ask that you would come after us. Would you lovingly expose our hearts and minds, the places that we need to shift through this, uh, through these next few weeks? And thank you, Father, that uh, Holy Spirit, uh, you are still doing amazing things. And even that when we get discouraged, I would ask that you would give us your energy and you would fill us up with your hope. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.